Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. A dialogue project brings together people from Massachusetts, South Carolina, and Kentucky to talk about race and racism. I would say that race is probably the most difficult conversation to have in our country. And I entered it carefully, knowing that it was going to be very difficult and very worthwhile. And it is, because the shifts are beginning to happen for this small group. We'll learn how that conversation is going between these very different parts of our country on Next from the New England News Collaborative. Plus, looking back on a historic Boston Marathon run and how it shaped women's participation in the sport. I'm grateful to Catherine for the opportunities that I have and that so many other female runners have today. And cue the disco and the hair metal. We'll remember a roller rink that was a meeting place in a small rural town. Oh, wow. It was like almost bumper-to-bumper people. It was always so packed. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. The big economic issues affecting New England are pretty well known at this point. An aging population means a shrinking workforce. A change in climate means upheaval in our farming and fishing industries. And the high price of electricity, plus a desire for more renewable energy, means big changes in the energy sector, which could threaten some of our other natural resources. We're going to start our show this week with a look at some of these economic indicators to see how these forces are changing people's lives. And we're going to start in Maine, where environmentalists are split over whether to protect scenic vistas, wildlife habitats, and backwoods culture, or to support efforts to fight climate change. This all stems from a plan we've been following for you to bring hydropower down from Quebec to Massachusetts. As Fred Bever of Maine Public reports, the plan depends on a $1 billion transmission line through heavily wooded areas of the state. Top of the world, gentlemen. Look at that. Wow. One way to get a really good view of the line's proposed path is to head up to the 3,700-foot peak of Coburn Mountain in western Maine. 15 feet of snow, and even in a burly snowcat with an experienced guide like Pete Dosty, it can get exciting. This is only 20 or 25 feet wide, and then it drops right off. And I mean drops. Both sides. Both sides? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can wow. see it both sides. <laughs> Holy crap. At the top, an observation platform offers a sweeping vista of distant peaks and largely unbroken forest. The nearest city of any size is Farmington, about 70 miles to the south. This whole wilderness, what you're looking at, is the gateway to the North Main Woods. Dosti cut the first snowmobile trail up here decades ago. Although there are no big roads or developments in sight, it is mostly a working forest below, and there is a patchwork of clearings and logging roads. The new-cut corridor and its towers of up to 100 feet or even a little taller would add an unmistakable new visual element to the quilt. It aggravates Dosti that the electricity flowing through the altered landscape wouldn't even serve Mainers, but instead head to consumers in Massachusetts. They're going to be taking a wrecking ball to the last of what we have here and the reason why we're here. Which is, Dosti says, a prized destination for visitors from hundreds of miles around. Because there is no commercial sprawl here. This is 
what's what's left of uh, what was here 200 years ago. So now we're kind of under attack. To offset the line's potential effects on the region's economy, CMP has offered millions of dollars in incentives to bolster economic activity and for broadband access. But many around here say that's far outweighed by the value of the remote, unfragmented woodlands. As we walk into the corridor, there's clearly a dramatic shift in the vegetation. We, we lose the upper canopy or the overstory of trees. To get a better sense of how transmission corridors can affect a forest, Nature Conservancy scientist Andy Cutco invited me to tour a 50-year-old power corridor in Bodenham. Young trees and scrub poke up through the snow, guarded by a line of utility towers above. One of the important parts of climate change resiliency is just the intactness and scale of the forested landscape. Unabbreviated forest land, Cutco says, can deter predators such as fox and raccoon and provide security for more specialized species such as pine marten or wood thrush that do not easily adapt to open areas or new environmental circumstances. Northern and western Maine in particular just really jumps out at a map of the United States as being unique and having literally millions of acres of large, unfragmented habitat. Still, the threat of climate change itself is also why the Nature Conservancy and some other environmental groups have stopped short of opposing the CMP project. They say that in recent years, the urgency of global warming has become all too apparent. Long-distance transmission of renewable energy, in this case hydroelectricity from Quebec, may have to be part of the long-term solution. The reality is we know we're going to have to clear forests uh, and disturb habitats uh, to, to be successful at that clean energy future. But the environmental community is divided on the issue. Our biggest concern is that this project is a sham. Nick Bennett is staff scientist at the state's largest environmental organization, the Natural Resources Council of Maine. The NRCM, the Appalachian Mountain Club, and others say CMP and Hydro-Quebec have not demonstrated that the project would support the construction of any new energy-producing dams or infrastructure. But two groups, the Conservation Law Foundation and the Acadia Center, say there is reason to believe that the project will result in new carbon dioxide savings. Back at the Bodenham power line, Nature Conservancy scientist Andy Kako says that while existing conservation law is pretty good at protecting wetlands and streams, deer yards, and endangered species... It really doesn't do a very good job of addressing those cumulative long-term impacts. Central Maine Power says it's engineered the line to avoid harmful ecosystem impacts and will conserve 2,700 acres of land in Maine while paying $6 million to the state to purchase more land and easements. But it's not responded to the call for mass conservation of neighboring woodlands, and the environmental group's ultimate support or opposition may turn on that question. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. If a power line might change the way of life in Maine's woods, there's been another big change happening in and around Burlington, Vermont. The biggest city in the state's become a hub for refugees and immigrants, both changing the overwhelmingly white demographics and also adding substantially to the workforce. But state officials and local businesses are concerned about that population shrinking. Recent federal restrictions have limited the number of refugees coming to the state. And as VPR's Bela Metzger reports, there's another problem, too. In a nondescript building in Burlington's Old North End, 
upstairs from an Asian grocery store, and down the hall from a shop filled with kids' clothes. There's a sparse office with big windows facing the street. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Buwan Sharma sits at a large wood desk with a stack of envelopes next to him. Thursday is payday. Every 15 minutes, someone walks through the door looking for their check. Ram is here. Ram Rai. Sharma co-owns Burlington Employment Agency, a temp agency that finds jobs for new Americans. All day, people stop by looking for jobs or for help with things like social security paperwork or housing applications. Or just to gossip after picking up groceries downstairs. It's almost like a big family working together. And that is something that we have consciously tried to do, and it works in our favor. Sharma immigrated from Nepal. Many of his 80 clients are Bhutanese Nepali, the largest group of refugees in Vermont. They started arriving in the state about 10 years ago from refugee camps in Nepal after being expelled from Bhutan during an ethnic cleansing. Today, more than 2,500 live in the Burlington area. Sharma saw a business opportunity in connecting them with local employers. We took off from the word go when we started our business. We did very well from the first year. But three years after starting the agency, business has plateaued. Sharma says the biggest factor for this is that so many of his clients are moving from Vermont to Columbus, Ohio, home to the largest Bhutanese Nepali community outside of Southeast Asia. Refugee advocates say more than 200 local Bhutanese Nepali refugees have relocated to Ohio in recent years. This has state officials and local businesses concerned for two reasons. First, Vermont is an aging state. And second, Federal restrictions on refugees have decreased the number of new arrivals to the state to the lowest it's been in a decade. Put simply, the state doesn't want to lose anyone else. Amila Marjanovic heads the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants in Vermont. She says plenty of refugee groups have left the state before. But the declining rate of new arrivals now makes this secondary migration a bigger concern. When you have an extended family pick up and move, that's, you know, anywhere from 5 to 10 to 15 employable adults that are leaving those jobs. And when our overall numbers are declining, there isn't sort of an equal out-migration offset by new arrivals. Vermont is not a bad place. I don't want to say that, really. It's a beautiful place. Jumanat Acharya is a resettlement case manager in Columbus, Ohio. He helps new arrivals get set up. He's Bhutanese Nepali and has family in Vermont. But he says there's a gravitational pull to the Columbus area. Most of the refugees, including Bhutanese refugees, the first thing they wanted to have is kind of, how can I become self-sufficient? Where is the best place that I can work and raise my family? Where I can buy the house? He says Columbus checks off a lot of the boxes. There are plenty of manufacturing jobs that don't require employees to speak English. Housing is cheap. And there's open land where families can build homes to live near each other. There is a tendency of staying closer to the family and friends because there is a sense of social support in any situation in hardships. Locally, Winooski has capitalized on the growth that comes with refugees. It's the most diverse city in Vermont. More than 20 languages are spoken in its schools. And it's one of the few cities in the state that's growing. But Winooski city manager Jesse Baker says the city is suffering from the decrease in refugees. People choose to live in Winooski because they like to be surrounded by culture and different languages and different perspectives. And if we see that wane, we are losing a strategic advantage we have as a community. 
Local businesses are concerned, too. Rhino Foods is a food manufacturer in Burlington. They make the cookie dough in Ben & Jerry's ice cream. New Americans make up nearly 40 percent of their workforce. Many people start an entry-level distribution and sanitation jobs before moving up in the company. Caitlin Goss heads HR at Rhino. She says the company recently lost two longtime employees, Nepalese brothers, who moved to New York. Not only might Rhino be losing two great employees, some of their family was working at other manufacturing companies down the road. Back at the Burlington Employment Agency, even owner Buwan Sharma is exploring opportunities in Ohio. If things slow down here, we have to make it up somewhere else, and that's a lucrative market, I guess. For now, though, he's focused on diversifying his local clients. He'd like to get work for more native Vermonters in order to grow his business. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bela Metzger. Our last stop on a swing around New England's changing economy is Rhode Island, where the hard-shelled clam called the Quahog is part of the state's lore. But the clamming industry has shrunk dramatically since its heyday in the 1980s and 90s. Oysters are all the rage now, and that fishery is crowding out clamors who get a bit less for their bivalves. Sophia Rudin of The Public Radio gives us the story. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get underneath all the shells and trying to get to the quahogs. That's Dave Gigliotti. I have been a shell fisherman for over 30 years. He's digging for quahogs just off Rocky Point State Park in Narragansett Bay. There's some debate over the name quahog. Some people use it to talk about the biggest clams. But basically all the hard-shell clams we eat here in New England are one species, the northern quahog. Other names you may have heard, like little necks, top necks, cherry stones, or chowder clams, just describe the different sizes. Gigliotti lets the tide and wind push his boat along, helping him drag a 60-foot rake through the mud. So now it feels like I got something in here, I'm going to pull this thing up see what we got. When Gigliotti got into the business, there were about 2,000 licensed commercial cohoggers in the state. Now the number is half that. Some left the industry because the money isn't great. Clam prices have barely gone up since the 80s. And Gigliotti says cohoggers have to compete for space on the bay with the growing number of oyster farms. That industry's growing, so they're always looking for space. And the problem is, is once they lease a piece of, of real estate, we can't fish it anymore. Cohoggers worry their space to dig could become more limited if the number of oyster farms continues to grow. Shellfish wholesalers like Greg Silks are seeing the clam's more glamorous cousin take off. His dad started the company American Muscle Harvesters back in the mid-80s. I remember as a kid we sold three to four different brands of oysters and now we do 40. You know, it's just amazing. And every year there seems to be more and more brands of oysters popping up. His own company farms mussels and four different types of oysters. It is possible to farm clams. Silks has bought clams farmed in the mid-Atlantic. But clams grow more slowly, so it's harder to make a profit. Plus, Silks says people here in Rhode Island just don't want farmed quahogs. The folks who are loyal to the Rhode Island clam, they're not going to accept the alternative. We don't want caged quahogs. How could you do that to that little neck? Let them run. Let them be free. Free, that is, until they're scooped from the mud to land on the raw bar at Whaler's Brewery. Andrew Greenleaf and John Robbins each picked up a sample. We got some fresh uh, little necks. 
Those are really fresh. That one, I put a little cocktail sauce on there. But um, sweet, nice and briny, nice and salty. That's what you, uh, what you want in a, in a fresh quahog. With quahogs like these, who needs oysters? Shell fisherman Dave Gigliotti thinks the state is ready for another clamming boom. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sophia Rudin. Coming up, a woman's historic run at the Boston Marathon. But first, strangers from very different places making connections about race. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Last year, we featured a conversation with women from Massachusetts and Kentucky who were brought together by a project called Hands Across the Hills. This year, a few members of that group started a new dialogue called Bridge for Unity. It includes a group from Kentucky, one from South Carolina, and one from Massachusetts who are talking about the tricky subject of race and racism. Paula Green co-directs these dialogue projects and is senior advisor for the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding in Amherst, Massachusetts. We asked her to join us along with Gwen Johnson from Kentucky, who also took part in Hands Across the Hills, and Regina Williams from South Carolina. We started by hearing from Paula about how these dialogue projects began. Well, nothing is really planned. It all happens organically and synchronistically. When we founded Hands Across the Hills, we assumed we might do local dialogues, and we could not find local partners in the communities around Amherst and Leverett who were willing to dialogue with us. It was just after the election, and I think nerves were raw and people were sensitive. And then one of our colleagues saw an article online by a man named Ben Fink, who was not a Kentuckian, but has been living and organizing in Kentucky. And he was writing about dialogue. We reached out to him and eventually formed a partnership. And so it was he who brought us to Letcher County in eastern Kentucky, which is a coal county that voted 90% for Trump. And our town voted about 90% for Hillary. So we had a good match. The South Carolina project emerged differently. It was because the woman um, from the, a town nearby us um, in western Massachusetts had a niece in Beaufort County, South Carolina, and had met other people there. So she came with that suggestion of Beaufort County, which we enlarged to also include Charleston, South Carolina. And then in January of this year, a group of you got together in South Carolina to, to have a dialogue. What, what happened during the visit? We had an astounding experience. We had about 17 people from Western Massachusetts, about a dozen from South Carolina, and five from Kentucky. So we were a rather large group. We met in a place called the Penn Center in Beaufort County, which is a historic center, started in the middle of the Civil War by two women from the North who wanted to be the first to teach a slave, enslaved peoples to read, children and adults. And they started a school in this region, which eventually became the Penn Center. It's an historic place where uh, none other than Martin Luther King had gone for retreat and to do some writing. So it was a wonderful place to ground our experience together. And we had three days of dialogue and cultural exchange. And, and Regina, what was that dialogue and cultural exchange like for you? What, what exactly did you experience? It was really informative because everybody's experience was so different. But what was wonderful for me was to realize overall that we all had similar experiences. We, we all had had things that 
made us hurt. But more importantly, we became aware of what hurt other people and how to be sensitive to those issues and how to operate as one group when it came to standing up for that which is right for all people. Can you talk a bit more about that, about those times at which it was difficult or tense or sensitive, perhaps, and how you worked through that? Well, we had had some sensitivity training as part of the um, weekend, and we also had a time when visitors came in, and this particular day, a woman came in, and a black woman had been speaking, and the guest, who was white, started her commentary by saying that the black woman was very well-spoken. And she went from there, which was fine. And you could almost audibly hear a a sigh in the whole group. And then when the guest had finished, a white woman who had been part of the commentary spoke up and said that the comment that the black woman was well-spoken could be misinterpreted because it assumed that black people were not well-spoken. And then she went on to talk about how sometimes it's hurtful when people hear these things, although they may not respond. So the guest then turned to the black woman and asked if the statement had been offensive to her, and the black woman said yes. And so there was an apology. Through the whole thing, I think we all understood that the guest who had spoken did not have negative intentions at all. But it was an opportunity for all of us to recognize the situation, how people respond, and to be sensitive to it and to respond accordingly. And it was really great that a black person did not have to educate. Hmm. Gwen, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that and talk about your experience when this group got together, maybe how it was was different in some ways perhaps than, than what Regina felt and, and experienced. Well, I, I was one of the ones who involuntarily went, oh, when the lady said uh, what she did, and I, I didn't quite know what to do with it. I was feeling a great deal of anger. I went to South Carolina thinking I've not done anything to further racism in this country, but I certainly want to be a part of a solution, if you will, to the problem. And then having sat through all the activities, I realized that unintentionally at some points in my life, I might have been a part of the problem in a subtle way. Just as this lady had spoken without thinking of the hurt that it could cause, maybe somewhere in my lifetime, I have been one who had spoken in such a way. And it it was really enlightening, as Regina said, to sit through those activities and realize that, you know, certainly I, being from the coal fields of eastern Kentucky and being a woman, I'm no stranger to oppression and I'm no stranger to being talked down to. But I think even beyond that, the whites have been pitted against the other races. Poor white people, such as what my upbringing has been, have, poor white people have been pitted against other 
poor people of different races and ethnicities uh, without even realizing that we have been pitted against them. And so it was very enlightening and and an eye-opener. And I'm looking forward to uh, more of this kind of deep, resounding work that has been in my mind ever since returning from South Carolina. Paula, I'm wondering if, if you might expand on that a bit, because since 2016, America has tried to have so many conversations talking across the political divide. But it sounds just from what Gwen and Regina are talking about, that talking across the racial divide can be even more difficult, but perhaps it can teach people a little bit more about the the root causes of some of the political divides that we have as well? I mean, is there something really powerful about just saying, let's talk about race and racism in America? Because of my experience working internationally, where I where I generally worked for a week or two at a time with a group, I created a three-day immersive experience for our dialogues, which is different from anything else going on in the States. And I did that because I know that transformation takes time. And what I'm really interested in is transformation of opening up the mind and the heart to uh, the experiences and the lived realities of other people in a deep enough way with enough exposure and enough time and enough intimacy so that a shift can really happen. I would say that race is probably the most difficult conversation to have in our country. And I entered it carefully knowing that it was going to be very difficult and very worthwhile, and it is, because the shifts are beginning to happen for this small group. The intention of our groups is to work on dismantling racism. So what we're doing in dialogue is the precursor to getting involved in our own regions and across regions, in addition to hoping that everybody who's been in these dialogues will feel comfortable enough to start one of their own in wherever their location. Regina, for you, what was it like to talk about race with a group of strangers, really? Well, I think the one thing that became abundantly clear from the beginning was that the the issue of white privilege had to be addressed and brought to the fore. There was no way we could operate in a vacuum. I think that's where the facilitators came in. I felt really hesitant at first, initially, not knowing people. But as the facilitators worked with us, and as we were housed together, we got to know people on a one-to-one basis. It was no longer, you're white, I'm black, you're rich, I'm poor. All of that sort of moved to the background. And now you were looking at people who were people. And for me, That's where transformation began. The experience is one where it opens you to the possibility. It opens you to the fact that, oh, this person also has pain around a given issue. This person hurts. I don't want to cause hurt. How can I be helpful? And at the same time, not be open myself to further hurt. As a black woman, you know, especially living in the South, that It's very easy for things to go wrong. So it's a balancing act. But I think the the tools that were provided provided us ways of addressing those hurts, those concerns in a constructive way. Gwen, I'd like to ask you about this conversation about race. You've already, I think, made it very clear that 
there were some some big breakthroughs and there were some some tense moments as well. I'm wondering how often in your daily life, in your community in Kentucky, race is something that that comes up. How often you you talk about race and racism? It was a revelation to me because we don't talk about it much. Our African-American population in our um, area has dwindled. But as the need for coal in the nation decreased, then our population and our ethnicities kind of, you know, have just left. And so the whole thought of white supremacy, as I mentioned, with being a white woman from, you know, from a rather a culture of poverty here, I didn't think that we operated in that. And then through the activities, I realized that we did. And now as I go through my day-to-day life, I'm looking at people different. I'm looking at gatherings different. And I'm thinking differently about many things as a result of being in South Carolina. Hmm. And this group is going to meet together in Massachusetts coming up in June, correct? The last weekend of June, they're coming up on the 27th, which is a Thursday and staying through Sunday. And we're pretty well planned out here in Massachusetts with the events that we're going to have. And there'll be dialogue every day. This this group loves dialogue. In fact, in South Carolina, we canceled some of our other cultural events because they wanted to talk to each other more, which is a very good sign. There'll be lots of time for dialogue. There'll be a public event so the community can learn about and see and hear all of our people from all the three regions. But the focus is on dialogue and and building our communities together, deepening our understanding and deepening our commitment to work for everybody's freedom. Gwen, how about you? What are you looking forward to? Well, I'm I'm looking forward to more of the deep, profound growth that I think came from being a part of of that weekend in South Carolina. I just, when people ask me what happened there, I tell them it was deep. It was painful, but it was enlightening. And it makes me cry to think of it, you know, because I, I sat in a room with folks who, you know, who have children that they care about, but they have to live in fear that those children are going to be targeted because of their race by law enforcement as well as others. That I, you know, I have a grandson that I'm crazy about, but I don't really have to fear that for him in the magnitude that they have to fear for theirs. And We've just got to do something about that in this country. That I have a keen sense of injustice, having suffered injustice. But injustice goes beyond what I have suffered in this group that I met in South Carolina. So I want to learn more about them, to learn more about how they feel and how they think about things. And then if we can lock shields, so to speak, to protect the young and the old and just to have a a more peaceful culture and a culture where there's not so much inequality. I'll be so happy to be a part of such a thing. 
Gwen Johnson from Kentucky, Regina Williams from South Carolina, and Paula Green from Massachusetts joined us to talk about the Bridge for Unity Dialogue Project. Coming up, looking back at the history of New Hampshire's last roller rink. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. Red Sox fans across our region have been waiting a long time for their World Series champions to come home. This week, the team was the last in the majors to host their home opener. And as it has been for more than 100 years, that game was played at Fenway Park. It's a place that millions of New Englanders have known, but few have known it like Donnie Gardner. He's the Fenway Facilities Superintendent who has to keep everything at the oldest Major League Park running. Reporter Shira Springer of WBUR met Gardner as he was getting ready for that first game. Come on in. Welcome to Fenway. Donnie Gardner greets me at Gate D, then quickly walks up to the visitor's clubhouse. He doesn't want to waste time. We have city inspections we have to worry about. We have construction we have to finish up. We have... Just all kinds of things going on right now. When you step into the visitor's clubhouse, you see what he means. Workers are installing walls, putting ceilings back together, painting, sanding, sawing, hammering. As Gardner moves from the new Whirlpool room to the new training room to the new video coaching room, he gets updates and gives advice. I would wait on this because I don't know where we're going to cut the line, but I think we're going to cut the line probably at that doorway. The same thing happens when he visits the Red Sox clubhouse area and checks on manager Alex Cora's new, larger office and other upgrades. Teams have outgrown Fenway's cozy clubhouses, so there's always plenty of work to do for the Red Sox and visiting teams. I'm not playing one side over the other. Whatever we do for one, we do for the other. As for Gardner's office, it's underneath the third base concourse. My door does not say facility superintendent. My door says Dr. Donnie's Department of Infant Psychology daycare provider. I'm an adult babysitter. Like I say, I have a weird sense of humor, and the company luckily uh, lets me be me. Donnie Gardner's quirky sense of humor matches the quirky ballpark he maintains. He's five foot three and a soft-spoken but commanding presence. It's clear he knows how to handle the unpredictable challenges that come with renovating a 107-year-old ballpark. He should. He's worked there for three decades. You know, everything we've done to this place has not taken away from the allure of the park. The feel is still there. This building has a feel to it. It, I mean, it does for me personally. You know, I've touched every inch of this place at one time or another. And with a footprint as small as Fenway's, every inch matters. Gardner likes to say he plays a game of inches. He's constantly figuring out how to make the best use of limited space, especially in the clubhouse areas. Sometimes he's also working around brass water lines that have stood the test of time. And during off-season renovations, sometimes he's uncovering remnants from Fenway's past. When we ripped up the concourse a few years ago, we were, it was like an archaeological dig, you know, finding the old nip bottles, you know, old shoes. And um, the place was, I'm assuming, heated by coal because we found a lot of coal ash out in center field. When the ballpark reopens for business each season, Gardner's focus shifts from renovations to preventative maintenance. Game days are actually easier, for the most part. If we do our job right, the building runs itself. But before the games begin again, there's a lot to do. Turn on the water to concession stands, test generators, check emergency lighting, 
finish the construction in both clubhouses, the punch list goes on and on. And Gardner's busy staying on top of it all. It's unlike any other building. I mean, it's not Joe's Pizza, it's not a high-rise, it's not a supermarket. It's, it's a very unique building, and the way it's used is very unique. Um, and that's what I love about it. It's, I'd get bored anywhere else. Even if that means putting in 100-hour weeks and occasionally sleeping in his office. One thing Donnie Gardner doesn't do? Watch the Red Sox play. He's too busy monitoring what's happening off the field. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shira Springer. There's another spring sporting tradition that coincides with the start of baseball season. It's the Boston Marathon, which is celebrating its 123rd running. On Monday, April 15th, some 30,000 men and women will tackle the famous route from Hopkinton to Boston's Boylston Street. But it wasn't all that long ago that women weren't even allowed to run the race. The story of the woman, Catherine Switzer, who broke the gender barrier in 1967 by becoming the first woman to run the race as a registered runner, is the basis of a new children's book by Kim Chafee, illustrated by Ellen Rooney. It's called Her Fearless Run, Catherine Switzer's Historic Boston Marathon. Kim Chafee described the start of that historic race. So the first couple of miles were great. A lot of the other runners that were in the race, we're excited to see her there. She, you know, had wore earrings and lipstick. She wasn't really trying to disguise herself. Around mile two, the press truck came around and a bus that was carrying race officials. And that was the moment that they had noticed that runner 261 was different than the others, hmm. um, that she was a girl. And the race officials were not very happy about that at all. Um, And that's the moment that there are the famous photographs of when the race officials jumped off the bus and attempted to stop her from continuing on in the race um, and actually attempted to tear her numbers uh, off her jersey and push her off the course. But thankfully, they were unsuccessful. And uh, the other runners that were with her actually pushed those race officials off the course, and she was able to continue on for another 24 miles and finish the race. I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to, because nobody believes that I can do this. And suddenly I realize, you know, if I don't finish this race, then everybody's going to believe women can't do it and that they don't deserve to be here and that they're incapable. That's Catherine Switzer describing how she felt on that historic day back in 1967. And here's how Kim Chafee describes it in her book called Her Fearless Run, Catherine Switzer's Historic Boston Marathon. Pat, 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 pat. For a moment, Catherine wondered if she should quit. She still had 24 miles to go. Suddenly, finishing wasn't just about her. If she quit now, no one would believe that a woman could run a marathon. People would still say women weren't supposed to sweat. Women weren't supposed to compete. They were too weak, too fragile. They shouldn't be allowed to run. We asked Chafee how she felt as she looked back at the conviction that Catherine Switzer had during the race. I'm so grateful to her that she did choose to continue because she is absolutely right. If if she had chosen not to continue um, because she was afraid or because of that major obstacle that was just thrown at her. I really do feel like as a runner today that I I wouldn't have the opportunities that I do have. Uh, that was one of the things that drew me to her story was as a runner, 
having signed up for several races, half marathons, 10Ks, 5Ks, I never once thought that someone would tell me I couldn't because I was a female. And I'm grateful to Catherine um, for that, the opportunities that I have and that so many other female runners have today. Women weren't allowed to run the Boston Marathon for another five years in 1972. Chafee told us about the role that Catherine Switzer played in that change. You know, running was magic for Catherine. That was um, one of the things that I really took from her memoir that she wrote that I used a lot for my research. And Catherine believed that if you have the opportunity to run and to prove to yourself that you are capable of um, these amazing things, challenging your body in, in amazing ways, that that transfers to other areas of your life, that that builds self-confidence. And so that was really important to her. And, you know, she continued to run. She didn't run Boston um, the following two years after 1967, but she did run again in 1970 and 71. And then in 1972, it was official. And, you know, she was essential in helping the uh, marathon event for women be included in the Olympics. And she just keeps speaking out about it and, and making sure that people know that women are just as capable as men and really deserve the same opportunities. Kim Chafee's author of the new book, Her Fearless Run, Catherine Switzer's historic Boston Marathon. It's illustrated by Ellen Rooney. We started our show by talking about some things that are disappearing across our region. Chunks of Maine wilderness, a historic clamming industry, a vital immigrant community. We're going to end with one of those stories, too. Brita Green of NHPR takes us to the only remaining roller rink in all of Vermont or New Hampshire. It's in Enfield, New Hampshire, on a rural stretch of Route 4. But when the owner announced recently he planned to close, emotions ran high. People didn't want to see it go. That's because in its prime, the rink was more than just another gathering place. And as residents told Brita, nothing quite like it exists today. Here's her story. It's an ugly box of a building, painted light blue, sits at the bottom of a hill. Great view roller rink. It's actually hard to believe the place is still in business. Sometimes there's just a couple of cars sitting out here, even on a weekend afternoon. But if you've lived in the area long enough, you know this place, in its heyday, was a completely different scene. People of all ages came from towns up and down the Connecticut River Valley. And this was the 70s and 80s. Big hair, disco, and rock and roll. It wasn't just something to do in a place with not much else going on. It was the spot to be for miles and miles around. Oh, wow. It was like almost bumper-to-bumper people. It was always so packed. I mean, I've got, what, six, seven hundred people on my Facebook page, and the majority of them I met at roller skating. Yeah, no, everyone was there just having a great time getting into the, the music. You know, you'd have a seven-year-old grandmother out there roller skating. And and those who weren't, they were at tables just talking. And when you had that many people here from all different towns, it wasn't just fun, but romance, too. Kids sneaking in their first hand-holding in middle school, their first kiss. So it was like a dating service at the same time. My future wife it was her first time skating. This year will mark her 37th anniversary. It was freedom. It was amazing. It just, it was. Here we go, opening this skate bag. This is Debbie DeHavens. Her dad, Al DeHavens, built the rink in 1977. Now, I have not had these skates on since Ronald Reagan was president. She says Al grew up an orphan in New York City. When he was old enough, he wanted to get away. 
moved to New Hampshire and got a job with a telephone company. But living here, it really sunk in how rural it was, how isolating. And I think he saw that a lot of the kids just didn't have a place to go and things to do. Somehow he struck on the idea of a roller rink. At first he bought a place, Debbie says, in a different town in West Canaan. It was old and cramped with a rough wooden floor. But he put an addition on it, got people to come over, and played, among other things, calliope, that old-timey circus music. (laughs) Well, I think it was something that he brought with him from the city. My brother and I found a trunk in the basement that had, like, this top hat and this mustache and I always wondered if he was if he was involved in vaudeville or the circus or or what but he just seemed to really like that calliope music remember this is the 70s in rural New Hampshire and Al's idea here to get people out was roller skating on an uneven wooden floor to circus music it might sound weird but Debbie says it took off so many people wanted to skate that the nights we were open there were too many people on the, on the skate floor at one time. And I think that's what drove him to put up a new building, uh, a larger building, and one with an um, epoxy-covered asphalt floor. It was so popular, Al built a new rink in Enfield, a neighboring town. A man named Ray Dauphiné told me his mom got him and his siblings to help roll on that epoxy floor with Al because it was too expensive to hire a professional. He says there was some resistance to having a rink come to Enfield in the beginning, things you might expect in a small town, worries about it bringing the wrong crowd. There were a few people who were just out against it. Uh, The the neighbor, uh, I believe she actually even called him Hitler one time because he wasn't going to back down from his stand. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. They called the Enfield rink Al's Casino. Opening day, Debbie can still remember. There was a huge crowd. She still has a photo of her dad from that night. He's wearing black skates with white wheels, a mustard blazer, a green shirt with a huge collar. With the uh, the mirror ball, you know, the disco mirror ball going, and he had black lights, and he had the blinking red lights across all of the uh, roof beams, and it was very impressive <laughs> to see not only the the floor be christened by my father, but also just the whole visual. Um, I was very proud, very proud of him. And that's how it started, the golden age of Enfield's roller skating scene. They had themed nights over the course of the week. Wednesday was disco night, Debbie says. That was a hit. But she also introduced some country music, which was popular, and they'd play rock and roll, too, on the weekends. She says Fridays were headbanging stuff. Saturday nights were a little more laid back. Kids would come in droves. At one point, Al pulled Debbie aside, told her he had a private booking coming in, and he wanted help with it. But she couldn't tell anyone who it was, not even her son. Turned out it was Aerosmith, like the actual band, one of Debbie's favorites at the time. A couple members of the group spent their childhood summers nearby on Lake Sunapee. Now, near the height of their fame, they wanted to spend a private evening roller skating at the rink. Debbie couldn't believe it. She got to work making mixtapes for them to skate to, a couple of different options, some of their own songs and some without. They arrived, and she went out on the rink to skate with them, but immediately fell right on her butt. And the band came and picked me up, which I thought was just so ironic. But we had a wonderful night. Um, you know, they, they flipped and flopped around, but for the most part, they did pretty good. And, and they had a great time, and we had a great time watching them. And that's a memory that I'll always cherish. 
But by the mid to late 80s, she says, Al was ready to retire. He was tired of the snow and the ice, the constant shoveling and plowing. So he sold the rink to a man named Peter Martin, who still owns it today. Martin's overseen the rink's fading years. We tried to continue building it up, but then the world turned differently and you ended up with soccer moms and kids brought everywhere to do everything but roller skate. He attributes the decline to a lot of things. More people staying home, watching movies or TV or playing on their computers or phones. There used to be well over 100 people on a Friday or Saturday night, he says. Now they're probably at an average of 30 to 40 out on the floor. You add up staffing the place, heating it, and it's cavernous, dealing with snow and ice in the parking lot. He says he just can't continue to lose money on the business. He tried to sell, but it didn't happen. So now he's landed on a new idea for the rink, pet boarding. If you're looking at that main floor, it's almost 12,000 square feet, except for the stage taking some, so you're almost down to 10. But when you have that ability, you can start to say, hey, wait a minute, I can make sections for small dogs, medium dogs, big dogs. So, Do you think you'll keep the sound system going? Oh, yeah. No question. Do dogs like disco, I asked? Sure, he said. More recently, though, I talked to him again. He said he's now reconsidering, throwing around other ideas, maybe self-storage, or maybe with so many people nostalgic about the ring closing, wishing it would stay alive, he can convince them to buy annual memberships that would secure the money to keep it open. It's possible this could work, but it's hard to imagine. Times have changed. For now, thousands of skates sit largely in storage on the old shelves. The disco ball still spins, but it's nothing like the glory years out on that floor. So the magic of the roller rink, it'll likely live on as it has in people's memories for years to come. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brita Green. Next is produced by Lily Tyson, our digital producers, Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. We had help this week from Rachel Garriger, Georgette DeFries, and Andrew Perella. Music this week by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, the Mallet Brothers Band, and Francesca Blanchard. You can find a playlist of New England artists featured on the show at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio. 